And now we can begin. So my name is Al Letson, uh, and I realized that um, a lot of you probably have only heard me on Stay of the Reunion or Reveal or one of the other audio pro- projects that I have done. Um, which, first of all, welcome to Third Coast. Y'all are like a beautiful audience. Like I just looked up and said, damn. They are special because they're radio producers, so they're special. Um, no, they are. You're beautiful. Like, I see, like, all the people that, like, um, helped start me on, not all the people, but a lot of the people that helped start me on this path sprinkled in the audience, and it is really great to see you. I swear I almost cried when I saw Zach Rosen because I haven't seen him so long, and I love him. I love him. Um, so yeah, my name is Al Letson, and I do a lot of different things, and tonight um, I'll talk to you about a new project that I'm working on, a small little personal project, uh, and the name of that project is called Earthang. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the reason why it's called Earthang is because I'm going to do Earthang I want to do, um, and tonight is true. I feel, no, like everybody's always like, you should do this, you should do this. No, I'm going to do our thing. I'm from the South, and that's what we do. So um, instead of just l- listening to radio or, or just doing that, I figured I would do some of the other stuff I do as well. You nice girl, get down here and wash these dishes. You know what you're supposed to do. You got to think that somewhere along the line, her parents had something to do with it. North Kakalaki whoops from the hand that loved her the most. It's summer, 1943. Try on North Carolina and the sun bakes your skin without mercy or regard. White folks getting red like the blood under their skin is about to boil. Black folks getting blacker like midnight. Their father has stretched his fingers around their collective soul in an effort to bring them home. Mississippi got Damn, but right now we're in North Carolina, and Eunice Kathleen Wayman sits on a mahogany bench, ten-year-old fingers preparing to tickle the ebony and ivory. It's her first piano recital at the Robert E. Lee Library, and everybody in downtown Tryon who's anybody has come to see the little color girl who can play so well. Her parents in the front row, four brothers, three sisters floating somewhere in the periphery. She arches her back, relaxes her fingers, and begins to play. She doesn't sing, she just closes her eyes and plays. There's music in her fingertips that come forward when pressed against the temporary friction of piano keys. She hears a silence in between the notes, the wide open spaces where only her and the music reside. But something is happening on the outside. She tries to ignore it and just play, but something is happening on the outside. She tries to ignore it and just play and just play and just play like a teacher taught her, but it's too loud and she has to look. Her fingers continue to move on autopilot as she glances at the audience as the librarian is escorting her parents from the front row into the back so that a white couple can have their seat. Mississippi, goddamn, but we're in Tryon right now. And she's looking at those white keys beneath her powerless 10-year-old fingers. And she wants to stop and she wants to quit. Some burdens 10-year-olds shouldn't be forced to carry, but she can't let it drop. She finishes a song to thunderous applause, but she don't want to play no more. It, it, it ain't fun no more. She want to go home. Until over the heads of smiling, homogenized crowd, she sees her daddy's face as he mouths the words, you know what you're supposed to do. And she closes her eyes and plays. 
But this time, her fingers hit the keys a little harder. Play a little faster. That wide open space has got fire in it now. Higher than it now and it just don't want to stop and she can't let it drop. So she plays and plays and plays until the pain goes away. But it never goes away for long. 20 years after that day, she renamed herself from a boyfriend's pet name, Nina, and a French actress, Simone. So she can sing in the piano bars to play for her education without her mama knowing. 20 years from that piano recital, she's a star now. But the pain don't stop. It's born in the faces of four dead black girls charred in the remains of an Alabama church. It's carried on the wings of Negro spirituals and in the righteousness of civil disobedience. It's given rhythm by the marching protesters whose eyes were watching God as they put one foot in front of the other. The pain is hidden under the weight of fire hoses, attacking dogs and swinging nooses. But on June 12th, 1963, as the children of Mega Everts watched their daddy bleed to death on the front steps from a gunshot wound in the back, the pain becomes too much to bear. Mississippi, goddamn, and she wants to cry. She wants to quit, but she hears her daddy's voice. You know what you're supposed to do. Miss Nina Simone walks out from backstage, sits on a mahogany bench, fingers preparing to caress the ebony and ivory. It's 1964, Carnegie Hall, New York, New York. And even here, black girls should know their place. They want her to laugh, sing the blues, sing Gershwin maybe. And she does until the pain comes back. Halfway through the set, she finishes the song to thunderous applause, arches her back, nods to the band and plays. Alabama's got me so upset. Tennessee made me lose my rest, but everybody knows about Mississippi. God damn! Thank you. So we've been making uh, State of the Reunion now for about six, seven years. Uh, I have been so ridiculously blessed to work with uh, such an amazing group of people. Um, it's, it's funny because I don't know if I meant it to be this way, but it just ended up being this way. But, like, literally, like, you know, you work someplace, and you're like, oh, we're family. Like, no, literally, like, if someone has worked with So True, you become family. So, um, uh, you know, I, I, I like to think that... Um, she said I was, uh, Sarah said I was a superhero. It's like so honorific for, because like I love superheroes. And I think that every good hero has an origin story. And um, not saying that I'm a superhero because if I was, I wouldn't want you to know because, you know, the mask and everything. But my origin story actually has a little bit to do with Chicago. Um, many, many moons ago, uh, I was a flight attendant. Uh, and I got based in Chicago um, it was like, I don't know how it happens now, but back when I was a flight attendant, this was in 94. Uh, I was a kid. I was like 20 something. I don't tell you how old I am. Um, <laughs> that's 20 something. And, uh, and, and literally like you get out of school and then they send you to a base. They give you a week in a hotel and then you're supposed to find a place to live. Like, that's it. Like, they don't give you any extra money. They don't tell you anything. It's just like, you've got a week. Go do your thing. Goodbye. Um, anyway, I ended up finding a place here in Chicago. And the place that I ended up living in was off of Bryn Mawr. And a buddy of mine uh, told me that there was this poetry thing going on 
uh, this place called the Green Mill. Green Mill? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Green Mill. Sorry. I, I was thinking the Green Mile, but I was like, no, that's Stephen King. Um, there was poetry going on at the Green Mill, and I went to the Green Mill, and I was just blown away. I met this guy named Mark Smith, who is the founder of Slam Poetry, and that completely changed the trajectory of my life because that's when I fell in love with words. And I was, you know, I am dyslexic, and so, you know, I had this uneasy truce with words. And then when I found Slam, like, I just fell in love. Like, I threw the truce away. I was like, let's get married. Um, And so, you know, I I started performing all over the country. And what was really helpful is that, like, I was a flight attendant. So I could, you know, perform in Austin one night and then fly to New York and perform in New York one night, so forth and so on. Uh, And the National Poetry Slam uh, was happening in Chicago. This was several years ago. I was, like, 99, maybe. Um, And I had been working really hard to kind of break in. And I'd been loving these poets for a long time, like all the people there. And so, like, just like anything, like, there's kind of, like, levels, you know. And so, like, I was, like, just coming up and nobody cared or knew who I was, whatever. Al Letson from Florida. People didn't even know what Jacksonville was. Most people still don't. Um, But then there was, like, these poets that, like, were, were, you know, big in my head. Well, not just in my head, but to me, they were like celebrities. They were stars. And in order to like hang out with these folks, you had to get to a certain level. Like you couldn't just like go to the bar and hang out at their table. Everybody would look at you like you're crazy. So I come up to Chicago. I had performed, you know, a year ago in the, in the National Poetry Slam. I think I rated in like 30 out of 200. And, uh, and that was my first, hey, JP, that was my first, um, that was my first national 30 out of 200, I look back and I'm like, that, that's not bad. But I was so pissed off because, like, I thought I was better than that. Um, so the next year at Chicago, like, I just came in like a raging bull. I was like, Argh! every time I got on the stage, I just chewed it up. And I did well. And so people started talking about, you know, this guy from a city they'd never heard of. And I walked into this bar and the cool kids were in the corner. And I looked at them longingly like, oh. and one person said, hey. It was like slow motion. I was like. So I went over. I sat down and I'm sitting with all these poets that like are amazing. Uh, Patricia Smith. Um, Sekou Sandiata was not in the slam, but he was there. Um, There was, uh, you know, a a big, at the time, Chicago legend. This guy named Reggie Gibson, who I had just beat the night before in his home city. What? He was not talking to me. But I sat down next to this dude, this this older guy named Kent Foreman. And Kent Foreman was this old school poet who had uh, opened up for, like, the jazz messengers. And he would be the opening act for Miles Davis, like, that kind of thing. And so, like, I'm in awe of this cat, you know. He was a real, like, jazz kind of guy, like, yeah, it's cool. And he'd do his poem, you know, snap at his finger. He was cool. Um, So, yeah, like, I, you know, I, I really loved this guy. I was sitting there, and all of us were doing what poets do when they're not performing. We were drinking and smoking things and acting crazy. And everybody had gotten up from the table. And at one point, it was just me and Kent Foreman. And he leans over and says, hey, boy, hey, I'm going to tell you a secret because I like your poetry. I like your poems. So I'm going to tell you a secret I ain't telling nobody else. I'm like, What? Kent Foreman is giving me a seat. What? Now listen. When you get on that stage, I don't care what you're talking about. If you're talking about police brutality, 
if you're talking about your dog eating your homework. If you're talking about your car getting stolen. The first thing you say when you get on that stage is this poem is for the ladies. They'll love you every time. This poem is for the ladies. I am waiting for Venus Williams to save me. Like some great Maasai Amazon warrior stepping out of jungle foliage onto green open fields outlined in white with sword in hand prepared to do battle, spitting words of flame like, mm-mm. I didn't come to play good tennis. I came to win. Braids singing like Medusa's hair, flaying against gravity as tennis racket hits full moon across net. And I'm stretched back 20 years to an uncoordinated, painfully skinny kid holding a tennis racket in hand, sweat saturating the grip as the coach on the other side of the court hollers, You're playing like a girl, Alfie! That's when I feel her slender fingers wrap around my shoulder and gently push me aside. Eyes of marble and onyx stare down a little man across the net and serve a man coming at ya. Zooming at 100 miles an hour, man, you better hit or get hit. And he decides to get hit. Bam! And I'm standing on the sidelines screaming, 15 love! And don't know what the hell I'm talking about. As the goddess of love stretches her statue of songs in the air and serve and serve and serve. Calling forth hailstones shaped like tennis balls to rain from the sky. Pounding into his premature balding head. While he's screaming at the top of his lungs, stop, stop, stop. And when she does, she stands there rocking back and forth, left to right, waiting for a volley that would never come. And I'm standing over the bully coach talking about, "Mm mm-hmm, who's playing like a girl now, huh? Who's playing like a girl now? What? And when I turn around, she is gone. That second planet from the star we know so well, flung back into the cosmos where she belongs, leaving me to fast forward 20 years back to the future to a man slightly more comfortable with his height, weight, and lack of athleticism watching her on the television screen as my daughter crawls on the floor before me, making me think of her. Every time Venus whacks another ball into the stratosphere, I'm caught up with the fact that my daughter will face obstacles I never had to see just because of her sex. At that moment, at that instant, overcome by memories of an event that never even happened, I want to grab my daughter in my arms and tell her, baby, these flawed genes I passed down to you may not be the stuff of Venus Williams and Mia Hamm. You may not write novels like Edwidge Dandy, Cata Joyce, Carol Oates. You may never see the moon so close that you can touch it, that you can taste it like Mae Jameson. But wherever your talents lie, it will be beautiful. And you will be beautiful for who you are. Weaknesses, strength, and all. And if they ever tell you, baby, you're playing like a girl, be proud. And know that you will win like a woman. So I, I told you guys I was working on a little personal project. I'm actually launching a small little podcast, um, and it's called Earthing. Because, like I said, it's going to be everything I want to do. Because I a lot of things I want to do, so I'm going to do everything. So, um, and I wasn't going to play anything from it, but Sarah guys was like, "It's Third Coast. You have to play audio." <laughs> so um, here's the theme music. My name is Al Litson, and I do a lot of things, but all my life, 
People have told me not to. Let me get this straight. You're going to be a poet, an actor, a playwright, a radio host, a storyteller. Man, you, you, you can't do everything, Aaron. But I want to do everything. And that's what this podcast is about. Everything I want to do. Stories, radio dramas, documentary pieces, interviews with some of the most interesting people on the planet. I told you, we're going to do everything. And sometimes I'll have my trusty DJ, Willie Evans Jr. with me. Uh, I'm not a DJ. Whatever. You make beats. He's the DJ. I'm the rapper. No, no, you're not. And no, I'm not. You never know, because we're going to be doing everything. You like Eddie Murphy now. You're trying to play every character in the movie. You can't do that, Al. You can't do that. You just got to pick one. I need to know what you're doing. I need to know what you're doing. And Sarah also bent my arm and said, you should just play something from it. So uh, this is a rough, rough mix. Uh, and there is, well, you guys are radio people, so like, there's words in there that people might like, not like, but whatever, it's third goes. So this story starts in Jacksonville. I'd been working on this play, Summer in Sanctuary, for a while. And, the, you know, the piece was doing well. And I finally got a chance to do it in a small off-Broadway theater in NYC. So my friend Bobby was dating this woman who we shall call Claire. And I loved this chick. She's an amazing dancer, good people. She had a dance company. And one day she tells me that the patrons for her company are coming to see my show. And she's excited because these people, they're well off. And if they like the show... Who knows? Maybe they'll invest for it to go to a bigger theater. And I'm excited, too. I think this is great. So after the show, I got to meet this couple, and Bobby and Claire were there. And we were all talking, and the couple invites us to go have dinner. Now, subtext here, I have been working in New York on this play for about a month at this point, and I have no money. I mean, I am so broke. No extra money to go out and have a fancy dinner. But these people asked me to go, and so I figured I've got to go. So we go down into the village. We're kind of on the west side, and this is a very nice area. And we go to this uh, little restaurant, and I look at the menu and like, oh, my God, it looks so good. But again, I don't have any money. So I look for the cheapest thing on the menu, and it's roasted chicken. Fine. I like roasted chicken. That's good. I can afford that. Meanwhile, they start ordering all these appetizers, these big plates of food, and they're bringing it all out. Um, and, and, and literally, like, it's massive, this spread that we've got going on. Now, by this time, they're on their fourth or fifth bottle of wine. We all have this great, engaging conversation over dinner, and I really like this couple. And then the bill comes out. And in my head, I'm calculating, like, how much this is all going to cost. And I figure the bill itself must be up to about $2,000. I mean, that's how much they were eating and drinking. And the husband of the couple uh, gets the bill, looks at it, and throws his Amex in there and hands it back to the man. I don't have to pay for anything. And then the woman says to Bobby, Claire, and me, Well, would you guys like to come to our house and have coffee or tea? It's just right around the corner. So all of us say yes. And the woman who is sitting to my left, right next to me, is laughing and smiling. She puts her hand on my hand and she says, Oh, Al, you know, we've never had a nigger in our house before. 
Wait, 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 wait. Here is where we stop the story. Because at this point, I felt like I was in a Dave Chappelle skit. You're listening to When Keeping It Real Goes Wrong. Al Lutz, African-American respected NPR host, playwright, and performer, is out eating dinner at a fine dining establishment in New York City with several white people. After the meal, they invite him back to their house for drinks, and one of the women says... We've never had a nigger in our house before. Al, completely surprised by this, decided to keep it real. You ain't, you ain't never had a nigger in your house before. How about a nigger on your table? You he proceeds to jump I'm, on the table, knocking food, plates, and drinks on the floor. Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. Hello, my ragtime gal. Can I get some chicken in here? Fried chicken. What the hell is wrong with you serving a nigga some roasted chicken? I want fried chicken now. Oh, Al, calm down, calm down. Don't, 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 don't tell me to calm down. You want a nigga, you got him. Hey, hey, hey. The police arrived on the scene, and in a scuffle to detain him, Mr. Letson inadvertently hit a police officer, let, let thereby let, let turning the charge into a felony. Let me go. Let me go. Mr. Letson is currently serving a sentence of five years at Sing Sing Penitentiary, where he works in the laundry room. But I keeps it real. But that's not what happened. When she said, we've never had a nigger in our house before. House before. My memory of this is that when she said the word, it came out and physically punched me in the face. I I remember it that way because in my memory, I'm not looking at her after she says it. It was like the punch came and my head got thrown to the right side. And when I came up, I looked and Bobby was looking directly at me. His eyes were big as saucers. And I looked over at Claire and she was staring at me with all this fear. And in looking at Claire... That rage that had begun to bubble up inside me, well, it had calmed down just a little bit because I got to thinking about her and how these people were funding her dance company and her dance company was her dream. It was her big dream and and I didn't want to mess it up. So I took a deep breath and I said, well, I'm not one, so you still won't have any in your house. And she laughed. And I laughed, even though my heart was hurting inside. And the waiter came over and put all our food in little boxes, and I grabbed my food, and we walked out. And so when we walked to the house, maybe two blocks away from where we were eating, I was blown away that they have this brownstone that, I don't know, it's like five stories. And then the place is so big that they can't even find their kid in the house. They have to use the intercom to buzz each floor to see if the kid is there. So we're all in there. We're hanging out and talking. I am not really saying a whole lot. And the woman in this couple looks at me and begins asking me all these questions about my parents. Who are they? What do they do? Where are they from? And during this time, like, I don't really want to talk to this woman at all, but I'm doing it because I have to. And Bobby begins to look at this woman really kind of concerned, like, why is she asking all these questions? And the woman catches it and she looks at him and she says, oh, Bobby, don't give me that look. And Bobby says, well, I'm just I'm just wondering where you're going with all this. And she looks at me and she says, well, 
When I think about your parents, I think about all the things that we've done for them. And Bobby says, what? You know, the women's liberation movement. We worked so hard to help the poor black people get better rights and, and be in a place where they could be successful. And when I hear about his parents, I'm just so proud of the work that we did. And and that was it. Like, I just couldn't take it anymore. I smiled for five more minutes and said, you know, I'm so exhausted from the show. I, I really have to go. We walk out of their mansion in New York City. And Bobby and Claire and I just don't say anything at all. I get on the train and go to where I'm staying. The next morning, I wake up and I am feeling like the biggest sellout in the world. And I went into the kitchen to get something to eat and there was nothing there at all and I was starving. Nothing but the chicken from that restaurant the night before. So I sat down and I started to eat and I was feeling so bad that I called my best friend to just talk about it. And I told him the entire insane story of the night before. And I said to him, you know, man, as I'm sitting here eating this chicken, I feel like the world's biggest sellout. And he said to me, man... You just gotta chew hard. And check it out now. Who is the cat eating out on the town? To make the whole dining room turn their hair round, Mr. Nigger. Nigger, nigger. He got the speakers in the trunk with the bass on crunk. So, literally, like, I just finished that piece like a day ago. <laughs> so, there'll be some more editing, I'm sure. And uh, normally, I would let Tina, Laura, and Delaney tell me what works and doesn't, but I didn't on that one. <laughs> So I'm sure there'll be some revisions. Um, so, yeah, that was crazy, right? I think that um, in America, we, we all, uh, the, the discussions we have about race always happen when something happens. And that's the exact wrong time to have a conversation about anything because everybody's tensions are high and, you know, people are upset and they're not thinking about it. And so I decided uh, I should tell that story because I think – a lot of my, probably a lot of you, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you, but I think a lot of my white friends, um, they, like literally, I, I, when I've told that story, like I can see people's faces, like they're just shocked that there are people like that in the world. And yes, there are people like that in the world, actually. There's a lot of people like that in the world. Um, they may not call me a nigger, but they do other things. So, um, so yeah, so with my little podcast, again, it's a little podcast. I'm just doing it by myself. Um, I'm going to be doing storytelling, but I'll also do uh, an occasional, um, I don't know, I don't want to say a news piece, but I'm working on a piece right now that is, um, when everything happened with Ferguson, uh, I went to Ferguson to just really see it and take it in. And I realized that like I, I was having a very different experience than all the other journalists that were there. And I just kept thinking about that. Like, what does that mean? That I am having a very different experience uh, than them. And I realized that what I wanted to do with that piece is really talk about, like, what happens to me when these type of things happen, you know, in the in the country? Like, what? where does my head go? And so I'm working on a piece about, like, that kind of stuff. So there'll be storytelling. Some of it will be fun and crazy. Um, I'm really trying to get an interview with Mr. T. What? Come on, if I get an interview with Mr. T, it's over. Done. I would just be like, literally, 
I, all of you will be so sick of reading my stream because I'll be like, Mr. T, bitches. <laughs> you know, like, come on, it's Mr. T. Anyway, um, so yeah, so, you know, uh, I, I was thinking a lot about um, in doing, um, you know, being asked to come do Late Night with Al. I was thinking a lot about, like, what I wanted to say to uh, you beautiful producers and people who make such amazing work. Um, literally, like, I had this whole idea where I was going to play, like, all the stuff that I like. Um, and uh, the good people at Third Coast said, yeah, everybody else is doing that. Don't do that. So, <laughs> uh, but there's just so much great radio happen. I feel like we are in the age of, like, golden radio. Like, we're kind of in the age of golden TV as well. Game of Thrones. Hello. Um, but no, like, just radio is amazing. I mean, everybody obviously is talking about Serial, which is great, but there's so many other things that I'm listening to from um, Strangers to um, Death, Sex, and Money. Um, I mean, there's just, there's so many things that I just love out there and I'm checking out. And when I got into radio, when I first got into radio, like, I really didn't feel comfortable with it, um, mostly because... You know, I listened to Ira, um, but I didn't really know much about anything else in radio. And the time that I've been here, like, the community has just, you know, I've become a part of the community, and I love it now. Like, I, I think about stories now in radio, where seven, eight years ago, I used to think about stories as far as, like, theater-wise. So my whole thinking has shifted. And being in radio um, totally helped me get this huge gig. So one day, I get an email, um, and... It, it's this great opportunity, and they're looking for three things, and I feel like I am the perfect person for them. One, it's this, comp uh, this organization that is trying to do a play about Malawi's transfer from dictator to democracy. Um, now, I didn't even know where Malawi was. I looked it up, and it's a small country in Africa. Um, but I figured, you know, like, whatever, like, I wanted to apply for this. And the three things that they were looking for was a playwright who had journalistic background and can document what's going on. I work in radio, what? Two, like, a lot of the people that uh, they were going to be interviewing were people of faith. My father is a Baptist minister, and I go to church-ish sometimes. Check. Three, it's in Africa. I'm black. Check. So I'm going. I applied for this thing. I, I sent it out. And a couple uh, weeks later, I get a phone call. Literally six weeks from the day I filled it out, I am on a plane going to Malawi. And the two collaborators I was with, uh, Bob and Pam, I hadn't met in person before. And it could have been a really disastrous trip. You know, like sometimes you have a bad travel buddy. It's just not cool. But they were great. And we, we fell in love. And that whole flight over, like literally, like it was like 20 some odd hours, I, I was just thinking about, you know, the whole narrative of me coming to Africa. And I was like, I am not falling into that whole black man comes home. Like, this is not going to be a homecoming parade. It's all good. I'm going to act in Malawi the same way I would act if I was in Paris or France or, or, or Barcelona. Like, you know, nice people, good people. They're not necessarily my people, but that's fine. 
And I'm glad I was thinking that way because, you know, if I had any other preconceived notions about how Malawians would treat me, like, that bubble was popped immediately. Like, they just treated me like I was a white guy. <laughs> like, they didn't care. I was kind of upset because I think secretly I wanted a welcome home parade, and it just was not happening. But, you know, whatever. So um, we get into Malawi, and, uh, and it's a very uh, – it's, it's an interesting country. Um, they had this really bad dictator for like 30-some-odd years, and he did all the things that dictators do. He, you know, put people in prison. He, he killed people, all sorts of stuff. And I knew that if I was going to write this play – like, I had to see what a prison looks like because I know what American prison looks like, but I don't really know what a Malawian prison looks like. So we go to this Malawian prison, just kind of show up. It's Makuyu prison, and this was the, the hard spot where the dictator, Kamuzu Banda, would just throw people and you'd never see, see, them, see or hear from them again. And so uh, we go into this prison. And they take all of our cameras and stuff, but they tell me I can keep my audio equipment. I'm like, yes, like I am built for this. What? And so we're in this really dark room. Like you you can't see anything. And I am just trying to get myself together and be prepared for it. Now, I've done interviews in prisons before. I mean, before I went to Malawi, Laura Starczewski and I, we're doing an interview uh, in uh, Missouri in a penitentiary with this guy who had Nazi tattoos and huge, scared the hell out of me. And, like, I came up with this whole way of dealing with that. And that is, like, when I go into a prison, I have to give the air of, don't fuck with me, but tell me your story. Don't fuck with me, but tell me your story. Hey. So I'm getting into this schizophrenic frame of mind, working myself up. I'm ready to go. They open the doors, and the light just floods in, and I can't see anything. Like, I'm blinded by it. And I see these figures come up. And when my eyes adjust, I realize that they're boys. They're just little black boys between the ages of, I don't know, 15 and 20. And it just just ruined me. I could just feel my heart crack. Because I looked at him and I thought, what is it? What, what is it that makes it a crime to be a little black boy in this world? And as I was looking at them, I was seeing the faces of the boys that I mentored back home in Jacksonville. Seeing my kids. I was seeing myself. And it really got me. But it also created this connection Like suddenly, the people in Malawi, we did have a connection. We did have something going on. Like I was in the motherland. And and there was some small comfort in that. But my heart was just broken. And I thought to myself, like, you have got a job to do. Let's suck it up. Let's get the tape. So I'm breathing. I'm trying to make it work. And this deacon who works in this jail, he comes over and he says that, Uh, nobody ever comes to visit the prison and they've got a boys choir and the boys never get to sing for anybody. And would we like to hear them sing? And I'm just like, yes, I've got my recorder. So we say, yeah, we go around the corner. Now, the way this prison looks, it's um, kind of red clay. The walls are, the floor is is dirt floor, red. Um, 
the area that we walk over to has a corrugated steel roof. The boys have shorts um, and tank tops. Some of them have flip-flops on, some don't. You can see like little puddles of rain from where, you know, it's rained or whatever and it's gathered. And there are about 30 boys in front of me. Um, And the boy closest to me opens his mouth and the note is just so true and just so perfect. And it hits me, and the the minute it hit me, the first thing that came to my mind was like, I have never thought about what the most beautiful sound I'd ever heard was. Like, that's crazy. I work in radio, and I've never thought about what the most beautiful sound is. And I I think before that moment, I might have said, like, listening to my child being bored and crying for the first time. But when that boy sung, like, that was it. I knew that, like, that was the most beautiful thing ever. And so while we were in Malawi, we heard a lot of singing, and it was all call and response, and that's what this was as well. And so the boy started off with one note, and then everybody behind him followed along. And the song just came out like this big sheet or this this wall of sound, and it just hit me, and I could feel it hit me on my nose, go through my face, and come out on the back and just surrounded me, and it was it was amazing. And in the first song, I was just being a really good producer and holding that mic and checking my angles, trying to make sure I got the good sound and just being really stoic about it. But by the second song, I found myself rocking and I wasn't really thinking about what was going on with the mic. And by the third song, I I looked up and I was surrounded by these boys and I was dancing with them and I was singing. No idea what the hell I was saying, but I was doing it anyway and I'm rocking. And I I remember clearly thinking like, I got to stop singing because I don't want me on the tape. And I'm, you know, rocking with all of this. And I go to um, put the microphone down and I feel that broken heart I feel it physically like coming back together so I move my hands to my chest and as I move them I feel resistance and the first thing that came to my mind was that am am I underwater because that's what it felt like the way your hands move in water but of course I'm not underwater and all that southern baptist preaching from my father just struck me and like I thought I am in the presence of God. I am in the presence of God. And I, I, wanted to, I wanted to fall on my feet because I just felt like I wasn't worthy. Like, I, I don't deserve this. And you know how you, you, you have a, a, a feeling and it translates into a word, right? So I, I, I hate saying, like, God spoke to me. I feel like I'm so arrogant. Like... But these feelings kept coming to me, and they formed words. And the words were just, it is well. It is well. And it comforted me, and it just wrapped me up. And the sound and the boys, I just felt like I was in this amazing cocoon. And at the end of the song... Uh, the boys came and they all talked to us and they shook my hand and I, I, I told them that I mentor boys just like them, boys that are having, you know, same type of issues. Um, and it was good. And then we got into the car and we started the 45-minute drive back to the hotel. 
And Bob and Pam were there and the, and the gentleman that was driving us and they all started talking about this and trying to dissect what happened. And I just, I couldn't, I just couldn't. So I, I put my headset on and I just played some music. And as we were driving, like I could feel those boys. And then I started to feel my kids and my family, the people that I love in Florida. And then it got bigger and I started feeling people that I didn't know. And I, I felt like literally if I, if I could look at myself, I felt like I was the universe, like all black with stars just sparkling in me. And the universe began to expand and I felt it getting bigger and bigger. And, and I felt at one point like I was going to explode. And I don't know what Pam saw, but she looked at me and she grabbed my hand. And when she did, I just wept. And I let it out and she let go of my hand. And it started again. It felt good. And then it felt really bad. And Pam grabbed my hand again and I cried again. And this went on for a good, you know, 30 minutes of the drive. And I got back to, um, to the hotel that we were staying in. Uh, I remember, like, monkeys are assholes. Like, Seriously, monkeys are assholes. The whole time we were in Malawi, like, monkeys were terrorizing me. I couldn't sleep at night because they would play on the roof. So, like, literally, they'd be on the roof all night making noise. And I remember walking into the hotel room and watching the fucking monkeys and thinking, like, this is perfect and the fucking monkeys are here. And I lost all the files that I recorded in the prison. Tenth file was corrupted, and uh, everything after that was corrupted as well. And I still had a big interview to do. So I, uh, I reformatted the card. I checked the mic, tried to get it working. It was working fine. And I went back downstairs because we were interviewing this gentleman at the hotel. And Bob and Pam were there. And Bob and Pam, um, yeah, I told them about it. And I, I, I wept again because I was perfect for this job. I could document this, and I failed. And Pam grabbed my hand again, and she said, you know, Al, like, we were never meant to have that audio. If we had had that audio, we would have been looking for the moment that something supernatural happened and we never would have found it. It never would have been there. That moment has to live in our hearts. It has to stay with us. And she was right. She's also not a radio producer. <laughs> but she was right. People say to me, like, you tell this story and, like, you really get upset. Yes, I get upset. Like, I want that damn audio. <laughs> but I held that, that story and that song in my heart, and I got back to Florida, and I wrote that play. It took me a whole year because it was a massive play to do, but I wrote it. I wrote it with that thought, in my, with that story, with that song in my heart. And any time I need it, I can go right back there and recall it and be right back in that prison in Malawi. And, you know, when I was in Malawi, I thought, I thought, hey, you know, like, um, 
this this experience like this is going to make me like get back into church it's going to you know i'm going to be the son that my father wants me to be and when i got back to america i would drive by churches and feel not disgusted but like just feel like i just can't i can't do that like i can't even think about it i i I have stepped into it, this was two years ago, and I think I've been into it in a church like once or twice because, since then, because I feel like my entire life, everybody has been giving me this concept of God and the universe in this glass. And when I was in Malawi, I swam in the ocean. And no glass will ever be good enough again. Thank you. And before we all go off and get drunk tonight, because that's what radio producers do, (laughs) I wrote this poem a long time ago, and I actually wrote it for you. Yes, you. And you. You. Yeah, I wrote it for you. And you. And you. Um, But I have not performed it in forever. So, in a time when so many people are lost... When we look out on the horizon and gray clouds choke our view of the world, when that which we believe in fails us and turns to ashes at our feet, when wars and rumors of war come home in flag-draped coffins and no one seems to notice, we are the voice that screams in the night. We are the sound of a mother's tears, the heartbreak that seeps out of a father's skin and the pride that eases the pain. We tell the world that they are here, that they matter. We erect sonic monuments in the, in the garden of good and evil to mourn their passing. We are those who find beauty that others miss and beg them to take notice. A smile on the child, the way it feels to spread your arms and let the wind wrap itself around you. We live in the moment but carry the lessons of the past as we were born to witness history and give it voice. It is a calling, not an occupation. Something deeper that keeps you awake at night. The story that nags at you through the mundane tasks of the day. The sound clip that brings you to tears every time you play it. The personal truth that lies somewhere in between a point of view and an opposing concept. And if that is our legacy, then so be it. Let us weave stories of our lives, of our friends, of strangers, of the nation, of the world into a tapestry of humanity. Infinity is our blessing and curse to be the canary in the coal mine, often forgotten, rarely appreciated, but vital for life. It's not an occupation. It's a calling. It makes you work harder than anyone else, pushes you into unsafe places, challenges your preconceptions and demands more than any job has the right. We are the sound that chronicles the fury, the raging, pulsing heart of destiny, the beat that connects us all. Wherever there's a story, that is where you will find us. The challenges we face are great. The country torn, grand canyons of misunderstandings between us, marches, protests, prophets of rage, and yet we must raise our voice. May the skies darken, the sunlight blocks. When all breaks, falls down, melts, stops, rots and runs away and yet we are the light and when things fall apart it's our job all of us to bring them back together thank you